Well, this morning we have the privilege of looking at the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. Hopefully by the end of this sermon you will understand why it is quoted so many times. Over the course of this summer we've been looking at the life of David and I've been tasked this morning to bring this to a close. Uh, David, as you know, has been described as a man after God's own heart. He was a man full of promise, full of potential. And yet, as we saw two weeks ago, he was also a man who fell drastically short. But what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 110 is that David was well aware of his shortcomings. Even he anticipated someone greater. With that in mind, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter, shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we pray that you would use this word this morning, this very text, to minister to our weary hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're familiar at all with the events of Dunkirk, then you are probably well familiar with the feeling of disappointment. I don't mean that the quality of the movie uh, is disappointing so much as the events themselves. Uh, what we see here is, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, Dunkirk, it's a war movie that depicts a situation in World War II of a rescue mission in which over 400,000 Allied troops are rescued from the shores of Dunkirk. The situation was that the Germans had cut off the Allied troops and they had forced them to retreat into the northern part of France. So trapped on the shores, the beaches of Dunkirk, uh, they, their plan from there was to establish this defensive perimeter around uh, the shores so that they could buy time so that uh, rescue could come by boat and bring them safely across the English Channel to, to safety. But the scene is full of desperation and distress. There, you have to imagine there's lines of soldiers uh, that are lined up facing the ocean, hundreds of people deep, and they're all clamoring for their spot on the boat. Uh, as uh, they're pushing, they're shoving. Some are pretending uh, to be medical personnel. They're grabbing the nearest body and they're putting them on stretchers and they're rushing them ahead of the line to, to, to get the next place in line. The arrival of rescue boats are few and far between. Uh, they're infrequent at best. There's air raids and bombings that are coming and bombing them over, over time and they just don't seem to stop. All the while, 
Home and safety is only 47 miles away across the English Channel. Uh, It's against this backdrop of desperation that the viewer is caught between this tension of despair and hope. Hope is dangled in front of you only to be dashed. And thus the cycle continues. After much anticipation, a ship arrives. Rescue comes. Everyone is pushing, shoving, trying to cram onto this boat. You as a viewer breathe this sigh of relief thinking this is it. Some of these men are going to finally get to go home and be rescued. And then you hear the noise. Boom, 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 right? Explosions come. They rain overhead. Uh, Others, some are killed by the explosion. Others drowned. The rest swim back to shore to safety. And then you're struck with this feeling of, when is this going to end? Well, the cycle continues, and so we wait and wait, and then another ship arrives. This time, they're lucky enough to make it offshore. They begin eating a meal that they probably had for the first time in forever, and they're, they're enjoying this time, and they're anticipating their safe arrival. And then you hear the sound again. It's a bomb coming from overhead. The ship sinks, people drowned, and many don't make it. This happens over and over again. It's this vicious cycle that takes place. And, and if it's not the, the bombs overhead, it's the U-boat firing the torpedo. And so the cycle goes on and, hap- on, and on. And you begin to wonder to yourself, when is this going to end? Is this cycle going to come to a close? Or is this ever going to be a successful rescue min- mission? And then their salvation finally comes. And it comes in the most un- of, uh, unexpected ways. Civilians from England hear of the plight of their fellow countrymen, and they voluntarily cross the English Channel in their private and personal boats. That Some of them are riding in fishing boats. Others are riding in yachts. Uh, they're all coming in their own personal boats to come and rescue, thus saving over 300,000 troops on the shore. It was a miraculous rescue for sure. But in a lot of ways, what the soldiers experienced in Dunkirk is what Israel experienced as they awaited their rescuing Messiah. And when rescue finally came, it came in a very unexpected of ways. Think about it. The psalm that we just read promises a mighty king, a king whose enemies will be their footstool. Uh, a king who rules from Zion, right? Zion was a picture of Jerusalem. It's a picture of God's holy hill in which this king's mighty scepter would, would rule. But, and then along comes David. David was clearly called by God. He was anointed by Samuel. He had slayed Goliath, the giant. He had conquered the Philistines. All the while, Saul had killed his thousands, but David had killed his tens of thousands. He had taken up his throne in Jerusalem. He had built up walls. He had expanded their borders far and wide and established a time of great prosperity. And on top of that, David was a man after God's own heart. If there, was any, if there was ever a time in Israel's history that Psalm 110 would have been true, it would have been during the reign of David. However, as history would reveal, true rescue wouldn't come through David. And so Israel was forced to look to another. But after David, it was only disappointment after disappointment. 
As we saw last week and the week before, David commits a horrible sin. He has, he commits adultery and has her husband killed. And Solomon, his son, had his own issues. The kingdom eventually divides. The Syrians come. The Israelites are deported. The Babylonians come. They're deported again. And then the Persians come. This time they're able to return back to Jerusalem. And there's this glimmer of hope. Maybe this is the fresh start they needed. Only to rebuild the temple and it to be a shadow of what was uh, to come. It paled in comparison. The Greeks would eventually come. The Romans would come. And then finally, when salvation does come, it is not in a way that anyone expected. Jesus, right, a Jew of the tribe of Judah, wise beyond his years, check, 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 right? He's, he's a miracle worker. He's a healer. He's morally perfect. He's full of promise and full of hope. But then, He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He associates with sinners. He he comes in the form of a servant washing his disciples' feet and then only to willingly suffer and die on a cross. Once again, hopes are dashed. Disappointment sinks in. Jesus is rejected and despised by his own people. Yet what Psalm 110 hints at is that this was the plan all along. God had a better rescue plan. They didn't just need a king who was going to come and conquer and execute judgment on their enemies. They, yes, they needed that, but they needed something so much more. Psalm 110 reminds them of this need. Let's look together at Psalm 110. As I've already said, Psalm 110 is full of of promises of a mighty and triumphant king, a king who will, one, use his enemies as a footstool, a a king who will, verse 5, shatter kings on the day of his wrath, verse 6, who will execute judgment among the nations. This is a picture of a triumphant king who would come. And at this point, all these things could be said of David. But as we dig deeper, we quickly realize that the promises of, psalm, of this psalm speaks to someone greater than David. The psalm is broken up into two direct messages from God. We see them in verse 1 and verse 4. Verse 1, if we look at this first direct message in verse 1, we quickly see that the psalm is pointing to someone greater than David. First off, this is a psalm of David. We're told this according to the superscription, and we're also told this according to the New Testament. So we're not arguing this. But notice the first verse. Look, there's two words for Lord. If you notice, if you're a careful reader, you'll see that one of the Lords is in all caps while the other one is not, okay? This is a signal to the reader that these are two different Hebrew words. The first Hebrew word for Lord here in all caps is the, is the name for, for God, the personal God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, Yahweh. The second one means master. It means uh, Lord in, in that sense. And so what we see here is that, that, song, that David is getting this, this direct message from God. And in this message, the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking and says to David's Lord something. He's communicating something to David's Lord. And thankfully, we don't have to guess what this means. Jesus actually is going to tell us in Matthew 22. 
In Matthew 22, we're told of an account where Jesus is being once again questioned by the Pharisees. They're trying to trap him in his words. And uh, rather than falling for the trap, uh, he ends up throwing a question at them in response. And this is what he says. So verse 20, this is verse 41 of 22. He says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying this. He said, what do you think about the Christ, aka the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the Pharisees said to him, well, he's the son of David, right? This was the standard answer and response at this point uh, that they would give. And then Jesus is going to ask a follow-up question. He says this, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, right? He's going to then quote Psalm 110 verse 1, okay? And then he's going to offer a follow-up question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he the son And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is making the point that even David recognized that the one to come had to have some sort of divine qualities. If David was talking about his son Solomon, then he would have never called him Lord or Master, right? Dad's in the room. It would be very strange, even though our children might like this, if we started calling our children Lord, right? Or Master. That would be very strange. Well, how much more for a king who had no equal earthly uh, representative? This would be very strange, Clearly, Jesus saw David as speaking of a greater being in Psalm 110, someone who would far surpass him in every single way. Well, verse one and following are gonna draw this out. We're told that the king will, one, sit at God's right hand. This is a place of honor, a place of privilege, of equality. It's a place that, is, that shares uh, in the glory and rule of God. Verse two, he's gonna rule in the midst of your enemies. He will not just rule in a kingdom or ter- in his kingdom and territory. He's going to rule in the enemy in the territories of his enemies, right? This is an expansive rule. And in other words, this is a rule without any bounds. Uh, it's, it's global in this sense. And then look at verse five and six. We're told that he's gonna shatter, shatter kings on the day of his wrath and he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. See, by the time we get to verse five and six, it's as though we're reading the book of Revelation. Yahweh and this king, they act as one. They come bringing judgment and justice on the enemy. And this judgment is global. You see, when David, as the king, when he fought on behalf of Israel, it was regional. But when this greater king comes, it will be global. It will be comprehensive victory. It won't just be Rome. This alludes to the fact that God's king doesn't just have human rulers in view here. He's going to conquer even the greatest of enemies, sin and death. And then we get to verse four. Perhaps the greatest hint uh, for why Jesus comes in the way that he does. This is the second, verse four is the second and last of the direct messages from God. And he says this, the Lord, meaning Yahweh, this is again the same word, has sworn and he will not change his mind. He says, you, speaking of David's Lord or the Messiah, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here in this verse, 
the future Messiah, Messiah is being compared to a cameo character of, of a cameo character in the Bible named Melchizedek. Now this is where it gets interesting. So Melchizedek is mentioned only three different places in the entire Bible. He's introduced to us in chapter 14 of Genesis with a brief encounter of Abraham, okay? All you need to know is this. Abraham, after he comes back from rescuing his nephew Lot, he's met by Melchizedek. Melchizedek is going to bless Abraham, okay? And then in return, Abraham is going to give him a tithe, why is he going to give him a tithe? He's going to give him a tithe because Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. In other words, Melchizedek was a priest before there ever was a Levitical priesthood, right? The Levitical priesthood doesn't begin until the time of the Exodus, until Moses' older brother Aaron is appointed as the first priest. Well, after Genesis 14, we're not going to hear of Melchizedek again until Psalm 110, our passage here, verse 4. And then the only other time he's going to be mentioned is later on in Hebrews chapter 5 through 7. And here, he, the connection is going to be spelled out between Jesus and Melchizedek together. All right, we're going to turn to panel 5, okay? I'm going to look at this, and before y'all pass out, because you see how long it is, we're just going to look at a few verses from the passage, okay? But it's important to see the whole, the whole thing, okay? Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 7 are just going to restate, restate the account of Genesis 14, okay? It's just going to reestablish what happened in Genesis 14. And then it's going to note a number of parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus, okay? These parallels are pretty cool, okay? So the, the first one is this. Melchizedek, we're told, was the king of Salem, okay? In other words, he was one of the original kings of Jeru-Salem, Jerusalem. Okay, this is fascinating, right? So what we can see and gather from him is that this was a king, one of the first and original kings in Jerusalem. Secondly, his name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. And he happens to be the king of Salem. The word Salem is comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So not only is he the king of righteousness, he is the king of peace. Do you see any parallels here with Jesus? It's remarkable to see this played out. Finally, we're told that he was without father, mother, and genealogy, right? Here, the way that he is presented within Genesis in such a short, brief account, it's as though he doesn't have any family. It's as though he doesn't have any parents, and in this way, we're told in verse 3 that he resembles the Son of God. Do you see this? This is remarkable uh, to see this play out. These details could be said of him just as they could be said of Jesus, but in a superior way. Melchizedek does something more than just foreshadow, though, some, some of the qualities of the Messiah. He also shows how Jesus, being a part of the order of Melchizedek, actually makes him a superior priest and a better king. And Hebrews 7 is going to point that out. I'm only going to give three reasons from here, from these verses. 
So verses 4 through 28 tells us why Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the old priesthood. And, I, and I'm going to highlight three. So the first one is this. Christ's priesthood is superior because of his tribe. Look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. So 13 and 14, it says this. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, but he wasn't of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't of the line of kings from in, Jerus in Jerusalem or in Israel. David, on the other hand, was a king, and he was of the tribe of Judah, but he wasn't a priest. In fact, he couldn't be a priest. In ancient Israel, to be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of, you could probably guess, Levi. And to be a part of the kingly line, you had to be a part of the tribe of Judah. In other words, kings couldn't be priests, and priests couldn't be kings. In fact, if you look at Saul's life, this is the reason why he was ultimately rejected as a king, right? He was waiting to, to go off to war and he was told by Samuel to, to wait until Samuel could come as the priest and offer this burnt offering. What happens? Samuel shows up late. Saul panics. What does he do? He takes on the role as priest and he offers his own burnt offering, Ultimately, he's rejected as king. Why? Because he tried to combine the offices. He tried to, to live these both out. But here, uniquely in Christ, we see both offices of king and priest combined. This is only possible because Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek. Okay? As both king and priest, Jesus has the power to both conquer and to cleanse. He has the power to both defeat sin and death and remove sin from the sinner. David, as the king, couldn't save anyone. He couldn't even save himself. In fact, when David cried out in Psalm 51, when he was asking and crying out for forgiveness, who was he crying out to? Not himself, to Yahweh, the Lord, the one who can save and forgive. On the other hand, Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and he comes forgiving sins. How could he do that? Only God could do that. Only the work of a perfect priest could do that. David ruled, he reigned, he executed justice, and he brought down the hammer at different points. But he didn't have the power to forgive and atone for sin. But Jesus combines both offices because he can. Okay, secondly, Christ's priesthood is superior because it's eternal. Okay, this is really important. Verse 23 through 24, look here. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, and unlike David, Jesus is eternal. Therefore, his priesthood is eternal. Okay, why does this matter? I'm going to get to this in a minute. Those of the Levitical priesthood, they came and went. But Jesus' priesthood continued forever. David lived. He died. Jesus lived, died, 
and was raised and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning and ruling. Verse 25 tells us why this matters. Okay, look what it says in 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, as the greater high priest, Jesus doesn't die. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't take breaks. Jesus, as the greater high priest, doesn't have office hours. In fact, Jesus' priesthood continues on and on forever. Jesus constantly prays for us in our weakness. As he said to Peter in Luke 22, when he told Peter that he was going to deny him three times, what did he also promise Peter? Don't worry, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that you would not fail, right? That your faith may not fail. When you and I succumb to temptation, when we falter, when we uh, act in weakness, Jesus' intercession ensures that we persevere to the end. Jesus both starts our salvation and he finishes it. He completes it. He brings it to his fine. In this way, Jesus' eternal priesthood ensures our salvation. Okay, thirdly and finally, Jesus' priesthood is superior because he's morally perfect. Look at verse 26 through 28. This is beautiful verses. He says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest. It was good for us. We needed this. A high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did not, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who had been made perfect forever. Unlike the every priest before him and after him, Jesus was sinless. He had no need to offer sacrifices for himself. You see, when the, when the great high priest went in on the day of atonement to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself to atone for his own sins. Before, uh, unlike G- David, A lustful thought never came into the mind of Jesus. Not only was Jesus qualified to be our priest, but he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for you and me. He didn't offer animals as a substitute for us. He offered himself. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices covered our sins They couldn't remove it. Only a morally perfect human could do that. Not only did he offer himself, but as the priest, he hand-delivered it to the very throne room of God. He didn't walk into a tent made of hands on earth. He walked into the very heavenly room and throne room of God. And when he sat down, we're told he sat down at the right hand of God. And those are some important words. Do you know what this tells us? The fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God tells us that when God the Father looked at everything that Jesus did, 
when he looked at his perfect life, he looked at his sacrificial death, God the Father said, amen. It is finished. Wrath, justice, satisfied. Sacrifice, accepted. And so, when every one of us who believes in Christ's atoning work on his behalf, on our behalf, we get to share in these same things. We get to share and have these same things repeated back to us. Paid in full. Righteous. Well done, beloved son. Here's the conclusion. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, the Israelites expected a triumphant king. A king who would come in, would conquer Rome, who would put Jerusalem back on the map, who would reunite the kingdom. However, what they didn't understand was that their greatest problem wasn't Rome. Their greatest problem was their sin. Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin and death as the greater king. And one day he will do that finally and fully when he returns. What they really needed was a priest king, one who was eternal, one who was morally perfect and willing to give his life that they might live. In Jesus, we have that priest king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we praise you that you know our deepest and greatest needs. Father, that you made provision to not only defeat sin and death, not only to defeat all of the brokenness of this world through your king, but that you made provision for our sins, that you made a means to, to restore us to yourself, to, to make it possible to, to be in relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would soak in this, this this morning, that we would soak in this this evening, that we would soak in this truth this week as we live out uh, your truth in, in our daily lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.